music, dance, theater. It's time to take a seat on the aisle with Tom Alvarez. Hear from performers, producers, presenters, and creators who enrich our lives in the performing arts. Who's on stage? Here is Tom Alvarez to introduce you. We're going to take a trip right now. Like we always do about this time. This is a journey into sound. Welcome to On the Isle with yours truly, Tom Alvarez. My guest today is Kyle Long, one of Central Indiana's most influential and respected broadcasters. Kyle is a producer host of Cultural Manifesto, producer writer of Echoes of Indiana, and creator of both programs, which air on WFYI FM, the PBS affiliate in Indianapolis. A major supporter of the performing arts, Kyle has made a significant contribution in spreading the word about the importance of the arts to the quality of life in Central Indiana and beyond. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The music we've been listening to is the theme for Cultural Manifesto, hosted by Kyle Long, and he's right here in the studio with me. So, Kyle, I'm so happy to have you as a guest. I appreciate it. Thank you. You know, Tom. when uh, uh, I mentioned that, you know, turnaround was fair play, and what I meant by that is you had me as a guest on your show at FYI uh, back in August 18th, 2022, and I wrote about you in my column on the Iowa Tom Alvarez on my website on September 19, 2022. And at that time, uh, I waxed about how uh, impressed I was with you as a broadcaster, the fact that you did your homework and that you were so respectful for your guests. So tell me about the history of Cultural Manifesto. When did it start? Sure. It started as a print column in Nouveau Newsweekly which some folks might remember. It's still in existence, but just in digital form. But it was a weekly alternative newspaper that had a long life in Indianapolis. And I started writing this weekly column for Nuvo around 2012. Uh, and the editor-in-chief of Nuvo at that time was a man named Ed Wank, who had had a long career in radio prior to coming to Nuvo. Uh, in addition to writing these weekly columns, I was also creating a podcast that would accompany them on the uh, website. And I would often, I, I'm a DJ as well, like in nightclubs, a nightclub DJ. So some of these, these podcasts would be mixes of the music of the artists I was interviewing. But I was just so, I love voices. I love the way people communicate. And I was interviewing such interesting people. I remember the uh, Creole musician Buckwheat Zydeco or Albert Mazabuco from Ladysmith Black Mambazo, people with these really rich voices. So I started just chopping up these interviews and mixing them in with the music mixes I was doing. So they became kind of like, they were more than mixes. They became like interview programs with music weaving in and out. And Ed Wank, and I was doing all this on my cell phone. There was no, you know, I didn't have the nice setup you have here. So it was very primitive and it sounded like trash. But <laughs> Ed Wank, who was the editor at Nouveau at the time, heard something in, in those interviews that he thought could be um, 
improved and could maybe be suitable for radio. So he introduced me to the folks at WFYI, and that was about 10 years ago. So I've mm-hmm. been at WFYI now for 10 years, producing and hosting Cultural Manifesto. What was your first show? My first show, actually, it's funny because now I'm also known for a program I produce called Echoes of Indiana Avenue. And a lot of my work as a music journalist has been devoted to studying Indiana's music history, particularly in the Indiana Avenue neighborhood. So my first guests on that uh, inaugural edition were Robert Montgomery, Montgomery, the son of Wes Montgomery, and Zev Feldman, who was a jazz producer who had released a series of uh, Wes Montgomery LPs. So it had that Indiana Avenue connection right away. And I also interviewed DJ Danger, who was a legendary Jamaican nightclub DJ, and he was there with Indiana Jones. And they had uh, done the the, uh, reggae nights at the Casbah on Sunday in Broad Ripple. So, you know, right away I was touching on the things I'm known for. Indiana music history, and also the music of the immigrant community here in the state, which I've also devoted a lot of my work as a journalist to researching the history of that music, and also the present day manifestations of immigrant music culture. Well, you know, I, this podcast, I cover the performing arts, mm-hmm. music, theater, and dance. And certainly you talk about music on your show, but you also talk to creatives from all the disciplines, do you not? Yeah, I do. You know, it is music-based, cultural manifesto, but it does bleed into other areas. And, you know, I currently produce a segment called Rebel Music with Carla Lopez Owens. And she's known, she's an attorney, and she's known as an activist and uh, someone on the fringes of the political culture here. And I wanted to do a segment kind of studying the relationship between music and activism. And I invited her to host this. And we've had on, you know, politicians, uh, writers, novelists. So I'm just interested in the way, I'm interested in all the arts with a focus on music, but I'm just interested in the way that music affects people's lives and uh, their experiences with music, and more so than just reviewing albums or, you know what I mean? Like the, that uh, traditional music. Tr- when I started at Nuvo, they're like, review an album. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, I don't want to say bad things about these <laughs> artists mm-hmm. in our community. So I just was thinking more creatively about the ways music touches people and how I, as a music journalist, can kind of Focus on that aspect of it. So the arrangements changed uh, late, most recently up to the time they hired you, right? You're now an employee of the station. I am. Yeah, I was a freelancer. Were you there on a volunteer basis? Kind of. I mean, really? you could say that. That's a kind way of putting it. <laughs> no, I mean, they would have been insane to hire me mm-hmm. right out of the gate. I had no background in radio. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they gave me a little trial period, and I, I, earned, the, I earned my way to where I am today. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I did work there on a volunteer basis. So are you living your dream, would you say? I suppose I am. You know, I think maybe you can relate to this. I think, mm-hmm. especially in the media, it's such a grind and you're just always like, you have tunnel vision on what the next program you have to get on the air is. So, you know, I don't often stop and, and think about it, but absolutely, you know, I didn't have, any, I, I would never have thought I'd be here at Wish TV you know, talking to a legendary journalist like you about oh, music and culture. But thank so, you. Yeah. Thank you for that. But, you know, we have a, so much in common. Mm-hmm. And I really would encourage people to look for the story I did on you and look at the piece that you did on me because we discovered we both come from blue-collar families and back, very modest backgrounds. And yet I had no training in broadcasting. I came from theater and I didn't even finish my education, nor did you. So... Do you call yourself self-made? You know, I I guess I am, but I don't think about it in those terms because I learned so much from people along the way. Me too. You know, our mutual friend, Artur Silva, who's a visual artist here in the city, I had a long collaboration with him, and he really showed me the ropes of how to survive in the world of uh, the arts in general. Obviously, he's a visual artist, and I'm a DJ, music journalist, but some of those same principles overlap in terms of getting work, promoting yourself. And he really gave me a, a PhD education in how to survive as an artist. And then at Nuvo, I had a very uh, thoughtful and supportive editor named Kat Copeland. And I learned a great deal from her as well. Now at, at WFYI, I have folks there that the, the late Jill Dipmeyer was very uh, supportive of me. And I just soaked up all the feedback she gave me. She had a way of giving me really useful feedback in a gentle way that I could immediately apply to what I was doing. So in some ways, I, you know, I, I arrived where I am today through a very unorthodox path, but a lot of doors were open for me and, a, and I got a lot of education from people who 
didn't need to take that time to uh, show me how to do what I was doing. Again, your your experiences reflect my own, and it takes a team, a village, <laughs> to to help people like you and me who come from you know very modest backgrounds to be able to. But I, I I'd like to think it's another thing we have in common is I could talk to you for days, and I'm sure people have told you that. I'm not the only one, because you're so, uh, you, you know, you you you're so you you can really see your curiosity, and, and like I said before, uh, one of the reasons I respect you so much is the way you treat your guests, and you can tell they're always I can I can tell oftentimes I've I've had the same situation. People come into the studio, you know, the, the power of the medium is such that people are still intimidated by about. And, you know, there's this whole glamour and myth around the media, TV and radio. And so it can be a bit unsettling. But if you have the uh, the skill to make someone feel comfortable and they're more willing to open up to you. So I, I, I think it's really cool when I listen to your guests and they in the beginning sound guarded. But within like 10 minutes, you've got them opening up to you and sharing their lives in deep, meaningful ways. Uh, is that intentional? I hope. I mean, <laughs> that's what you hope for, right? And uh, certainly it's my intent to do the best job I can. And I would credit that to the amount of, number one, interest I have in everybody I speak to. I wouldn't invite someone to do an interview if I wasn't genuinely interested in what they do, but also the advanced research that goes into it. People respect that and they get excited about it. And what's really interesting is when you're sharing things with people, that sometimes not only have made, they may have forgotten, but they exactly. really didn't know. They really didn't know the ways their work, they really didn't know the ways, the ways their work had circulated, and they really didn't understand the impact of what they did. So, you know, I, I some, I, when I interview musicians, I, I tell them, you know, did you know your song was sampled in this rap track? Did you know your record now sells for $4,000? So... That's exciting for people, and it, it really changes the dynamic when mm -hmm. you're able to kind of show them a side of what they've done that maybe they didn't know about. So, yeah, it's well, the research. You can hear the gratitude in their voices, uh, you know, over the airways when, when, when you pay homage to them the way you do. And you do it in a way that's uh, it's not gushing. It's uh, you always honor them, and I especially love the way you talk to seniors in particular. And you know, you always get the impression, oftentimes, that they think they've been forgotten, mm. and you bring back all of these memories, and then they begin to share all of these wonderful memories that they, no one seems to have remembered or cared much about, and they get to relive all that. You get, and that's one of the reasons I love it. It's, it's got a real documentary feel to it. And I, I hope to, so. I used to produce documentaries, so I love history. And uh, to see those uh, interviewees of yours have the opportunity to talk about their careers and their work the other thing that I appreciate is is that you know you you know how musicians tick, do you not? And where does that come from? Yeah, well, I'm on the. <laughs> you know, some people might not consider this uh, to be in the sphere of music, but I think I'm kind of on the periphery of being a musician as a DJ because mm -hmm. we, a lot of the principles that uh, traditional musicians use, we use in our work. You know, uh, pitch, time, tempo, meter. You know, beat. We're, we're working in music in a way, DJs, club DJs. So I think that does give me, and we're performers too, in a sense. I'm not mm -hmm. much of a performer as a DJ, but I think that gives me some insight into it. And I also you know, had my time playing saxophone and guitar mm -hmm. as a teenager. So I have some rudimentary understanding of music so, so that I can bring to these interviews. So you were like an immersive music nerd from the very beginning? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I'm sure my mom had a lot to do with that, you yeah. know, because I inherited her record collection when she passed and it just, I could see my DNA in her record collection, you know, uh, she had Bob Dylan albums, Thelonious Monk albums. Uh, she had Charlie. I don't know if anyone remembers Charlie Bird. He was an American bot guitar, jazz guitarist who specialized in Brazilian bossa nova music. So that was just like, like I said, it was like a piece of my DNA in her record collection. So I started collecting records when I was very young. 
Uh, I grew up at a time when people were just throwing records out on the street with the garbage. And mm -hmm. literally, I would pull records out of uh, garbage cans and take them home. And we lived in this terrible, horrible trailer park in a rural suburb of Indianapolis. And it was a tiny home. And I had two siblings. And I developed this record collection that outgrew our trailer. And my mom was very tolerant of this. She let me store records in our kitchen cabinets. <laughs> it was a mess. It was a nightmare for her. But she tolerated my obsession with music and collecting records. You know, you talked in detail about your beloved mother in the interview that you did with me. But tell our listeners a bit more about her and how special she was to you in terms of uh, what you've done with your life. Yeah, well... When I was like a troubled teenager, which I think most of us were at one point, she had a lot of understanding for that and granted me a lot of independence and freedom. I ultimately did not finish high school and she never was hateful towards me because of that. She never punished me for that. She allowed me the time and space to figure something out for myself. And that's really what I'm most grateful for. I also had a sister, a younger sister who was an incredible influence on me. We had very different music tastes at one point, and she opened my mind to a lot of things that I had shut off. Mm. And she started practicing music journalism when she was 13 or 14 years old. She created what we refer to today as a zine, which is like a photocopied, uh, like a grassroots sort of magazine. And she was interviewing international rock stars like Oasis and Blur, these huge British rock bands in the 1990s just on this little photocopy zine she did with her friend. So through her, I could see how if you put some imagination and work into it, you can do anything. I mean, we were living in squalor. and <laughs> She was interviewing these major rock stars. So she, she opened my mind to a lot of things uh, musically. And her and my mother, I, I wouldn't be here today without their Well, I know influence. you to be a survivor because there's some tragedy involved. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Sure. My sister, you know, she developed a drug problem, an addiction problem, and it ultimately led to her hospitalization, hospitalization at a young age. And my mother and I would stay at the hospital and care for her. And my mother passed away one night during this process of caring for my sister. And then just not much time had passed after that and my sister passed away. And this was really the anchor of my universe, these two people. And I was fairly young at the time myself. I was around 29 or I don't remember exactly how old I was. So that was really a, a point where overcoming that tragedy, I had to reinvent myself. And it allowed me the opportunity to kind of pursue the things that I'm now doing today. I immediately got involved in DJing not long after that. So that really, it was tragic, but it allowed me an, an opportunity to kind of, it, it allowed me a rebirth in a way. And I don't know why that is exactly. I don't know why I wasn't doing those things before, but it, it broke down something inside me. Well, I, I consider you not only to be a gifted journalist, but I, I, I consider you to be an artist as well. And because of that, you know, it's been my experience that many artists, most artists, you know, turn tragedy into positivity and make a big contribution using that experience. Would you say that that you did that? Turn turn that tragedy into to being a positive force. Sure, I hope so. And I think it just I think when you go through something, a personal tragedy where you lose people who are kind of the center of your life, you either I, I know people who become incapable of moving on and they become obsessed with these, these people and yeah may, they maybe become bitter but for me it gave me a sense of fearlessness i've like i've survived something that i didn't think i could survive so it was like these things that i was afraid to do like go dj at a nightclub i was a very shy withdrawn person mm -hmm. and the idea of getting in front of a room of 200 people at a nightclub and being the center of attention terrified me mm -hmm. but after surviving that i was like what do i have to lose at this point you know humiliation seems like nothing compared to the grief that i experienced in this uh, surviving this personal tragedy you know considering your background and and how you uh you know, you turned your back on formal education. How did you educate yourself? Well, maybe they turned their back on me. I don't know that I had any kind of master yeah, plan. Actually, you know what I mean? Actually, that's often the case. In the in the area where I grew up, it was a very classist culture. And I didn't strike them as someone who deserved 
higher education. So I kind of was one of those people that fell between the cracks, I guess. But it was through music. It's funny enough, you know, collecting records, it ignited in me this interest in the world that wasn't there before. I loved music. And again, being able to walk into a thrift store and just rummage through this pile of trash and find records from Africa, Europe, it opened a whole new world for me. And eventually that led to me hanging out at uh, Indian, Mexican grocery stores out on the west side of Indianapolis and buying dollar tapes that they would have next to the cash register. And that developed a whole new interest. So my education about the world was all through my interest in music and going out and researching music and finding these tapes and records at stores around the city. It's did you not tell me you spent a lot it. of time at the library? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I remember one year I begged my mom to buy a plaque card and people probably don't know what that is. We lived in Hendricks County and a plaque card is what grants you the ability to uh, check out books at a, a library outside of your county. Because you couldn't get a Marion County library card. My dream was to get a library card for Central Library as a teenager. And yeah, I would check out the maximum number of books, records, videotapes. And I thought I was rich when I had that plaque card. It was like I'd won the lottery because I could mm -hmm. now access this wealth of uh, material at Central Library in downtown Indianapolis. What did you do to support yourself before you became a DJ? Sure. So I sold records. That was one of the things. Okay. The internet was booming at that time and I would sell rare records. But I also worked at a grocery store in the night shift for almost 10 years mm. and that was an education too just learning how to connect and relate to people who were very different from me you know that we had different values different political beliefs so i learned so much working with those folks where did that comfort with uh, folks considered marginalized where, where did that come from you mentioned you went to mexican and indian stores and Sounds like you were pretty comfortable yeah. wherever you were. Just not fitting in in the world I grew up in. I didn't have a place in, in for whatever reason. I, like I said, I could say it's maybe a class issue. I don't know what it was, but I just was never accepted amongst my peers as a child. And <laughs> this Avon at the time is where we were living. Mm -hmm. And I think that just gave me um, empathy for other people who may not feel mm -hmm. a place in, in the culture they exist in. So I, I would credit it to that. And also I found that, you know, through music, I could connect with anyone. And that spark of joy, for instance, you know, I worked at a gas station for a while and one of my coworkers was uh, from Pakistan. And I would, on our breaks, I would ask her very meekly, because I was even scared to approach her, because I was so shy at the time. I would ask her about uh, Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan or these famous Pakistani singers. And the joy that overcame people when you would mention something that was dear to them that they had to keep hidden in this culture and society that, that the we live in. pot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, that spark of joy like really encouraged me to use music as a way to connect with people. And it's something I did in my DJ work. That's why I gravitated towards DJing Asian music. Latin music, because that intercultural connection and the joy that it brings people to feel seen and and to experience their music and culture in the, with others from outside that tradition, I think that's how you people develop a sense of home and for where they live when they felt alienated before. So yeah, I believe I told you that I'm now living in Hallville mm -hmm. and I've lived all over Indianapolis during my 45, 50 years here, and yet I never felt the same I, as I did growing up in a very diverse neighborhood in Fort Wayne where I'm from. And, you know, I'm surrounded by primarily Latino immigrants. And the immigrants, in my, in my view, have really changed the fabric of our city for the better. I finally feel like I live in a world-class city. Mm. What do you think? Well, I love Hallville. I think it's, <laughs> I'm fascinated by the neighborhood's history and what it is today. And it is that kind of big city neighborhood. You know, mm -hmm. it was for many years um, populated by Slovenian immigrants. And then the neighborhood began to diversify yeah. in the mid to late but 20th century. But the city century, in general, yeah, to see all of these different colors of faces mm -hmm. and languages right. now the city in Indianapolis, don't Absolutely. you agree that we 100%. have the fabric that yes. I speak of? Yes, it, it has blossomed, do you not? And, oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that's very present in the music scene today. You know, and I've had to amend this. People often ask me as a music journalist, like, what's next for Indiana? What's like 
on the horizon for music in Indiana. And I used to say, oh, in the future, you know, immigrant music culture is going to be what we're known for. And now I have to say, that's what we're known for now. Yeah. The biggest act to come out of Indiana, and the, one of the biggest acts to come out of Indiana in the last few years is Omar Apollo. He's from Hobart, Indiana, raised by uh, Mexican-American immigrants. He's a huge star. So yes, Indianapolis has changed. Indiana has changed. And it's it's brought so much life and vibrancy to our arts and culture. What are some of these music scenes that you're referring to? Right. Here in Indianapolis, I mean, we have so much diversity in the music scene. If you go out to Lafayette Road, near the old Lafayette Square, right, in the abandoned strip malls and the Kmarts and Targets from the past, they've opened huge dance halls. And some of the biggest acts in Latin America perform at these clubs. You know, salsa, I've seen Grupo Nietzsche, the Colombian salsa group. I saw Los Tigres del Norte, the famous uh, North and Mexico Norteño group, play at an old Value City furniture store. The la I saw them play there about 10 years ago. The last time they came to Indianapolis, they were at the Field House. But that shows you the magnitude of the artists that are playing over there. There's also w uh, West African music in that neighborhood as well. So, yeah, that's... There's a big Sikh community here. Do they have a music scene? They do. The Indians? Yeah. And that's something I was part of for many years. <laughs> I brought really? uh, one of the most famous uh, Punjabi artists in the world to Indianapolis, Punjabi MC, a few years back, and we did a show together. So, yeah, the, the, the South Asian community has a huge music scene here, both mm -hmm. classical and pop music. How about the uh, country scene? You know what? Historically, Indiana had an extraordinary country music scene, and it's still here to some extent, but not like it once was. There used to be like a honky-tonk bar on every corner in mm -hmm. Indianapolis. But yeah, I think that's also growing as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Rock and roll? Yeah, it's still here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Go to Fountain Square. There's rock bands everywhere. A, the different kind of rock and roll. I mean, you know, different pop as opposed to retro. Or, I mean, you know, is it or is it just, is it broad? It's broad. Yeah. yeah, there's definitely. I mean, Joyful Noise Recordings is based here in Indianapolis, mm -hmm. one of the most successful independent rock music and experimental mm -hmm. music record labels. Mm -hmm. So definitely, there's a lot. Do you going have on. a favorite music? I mean, it changes by the second. Yeah, there are artists that I would go back to all the time, but yeah, it changes all the time. Mm -hmm. That for me is an impossible question to answer when people ask, "What's your favorite film? What's your favorite musical? What's your favorite whatever?" You yeah, know? I like hearing new things, and mm -hmm. that's my favorite thing to hear something new that's exciting mm -hmm. and that you know captures my interest mm -hmm. and excitement. And do you do you like musicals, musical theater? Oh, yeah, I love mm -hmm. musicals, classic mm -hmm. musicals. I, I I love the classic Broadway musicals, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Do you get a chance to see... Kurt Vile is one of my heroes. I don't know if he counts well, course, as music uh, in the world of musicals, uh, but he did a few. Uh, Three Penny Opera. Right, right. Yeah, he's and, kind of a hybrid. Of, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Opera and Broadway. Uh, have you... Uh, how often do you see live music acts? You know, since the pandemic... Is that part not, of your job? Yeah, since the <laughs> pandemic, not as much as I used to. But yeah, I used to be in clubs all the time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's so much to do here now compared to when I was coming I bet you I spent your up. time at the Jazz Kitchen, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I used to play there all the time. We did a big Brazilian carnival there. Mm -hmm. I did that with Artur Silva, playing Brazilian music all night long with dancers and samba drummers. So I've worked a lot at the Jazz Kitchen as a DJ. Well, you know, the guests who preceded you, uh, I'm sure you've met Danny Duarte for the IU classical music mm, uh, yeah, guitarist yeah, from yeah. Brazil. Mm -hmm. We spent a lot of time talking about the Bossa Nova concert he did with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, that's amazing. And I tagged Arturo on, yeah. on, this, on, the, uh, on the post about my podcast. Great. What do you love about Brazilian music? Oh, my God. To me, it's like... Brazil and America were like separated at birth. Mm -hmm. There's so much commonality in the music. What really got me into Brazilian music initially were the Tropicalia artists. This was an arts and culture movement that blossomed in Brazil in the late 1960s. They were reacting to the military dictatorship that ruled the country at the mm -hmm. time. And they were being influenced by the Beatles and James Brown and all these uh, American and British groups. And they created this music that was psychedelic it was funky they it was like it was a mix of everything that i loved and that was the gateway to the world of brazilian music for me Joe artists like Jorge ben uh, caetano veloso and yeah then getting into the the classic bossa nova music and samba i love 
old school Brazilian samba Astrid music. Gabelter, who Gil, Gilberto, who yeah. we just lost last right. week. I mean, we've lost a lot of Brazilian Wasn't music. Wasn't that icons. a Stan Getz album that right. she, right. she uh, yeah. Yeah, and she was not really, uh, she's not well regarded by a lot of Brazilian people. She yeah. kind of had her career in the U.S. and mm -hmm. Japan, but uh, Elsa Suarez died recently, who was mm -hmm. an extraordinary bossa nova and samba singer. Are Gal you a Costa fan of Stacey Kent's? Stacey Kent's the jazz singer. I'm not She's familiar recorded with that. frequently in in Brazil as well. Okay, I'll check there. it out. Yeah, yeah. For, uh, she's appeared here several times okay. at, in concerts at the Palladium and also at the Cabaret. She's got an album. Uh, it's all Brazilian music, and she often performs. And she speaks Portuguese and and performs in Brazil mm. quite a bit. She's actually quite well known. Yeah. So how about Latino music? What do you like about Latino music? Well, what got and me that's into broad yeah, too. Yeah. I mean, what got know, me into that was Tito Puente hearing his music for the first uh -huh. time. And it had this kind of aggressive swing to it. It's this pounding rhythm. And it was very much like the rap and heavy metal music I grew up listening to in terms of the intensity of it. And that's what got me into Latin music, Tito Puente, mm -hmm. and just becoming addicted to that big mambo sound and the 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 energy of it and the they're like pounding the instruments with this violent force like the great pianist eddie palmieri just like pounding away at the keyboard mm -hmm. it was like punk rock it was like metal it was like rap music it had that same kind of ferocious intensity to it mm -hmm. and from there you know you get into all the micro genres throughout the continent of south america and latin america so but tito puente was 100 percent the gateway for me into that world so tell me within the last 10 years you've had your share of of guests and you know i've i've listened to you most of the time you're on the air i certainly can't keep track of all of the uh, the big names that you've had on but you really have touched base with some of the most legendary musicians around how do you produce hmm. that's a good question yeah like you know i always prioritize local music and especially his things that i deem historically significant so i will bump a big celebrity interview I have a chance to do for an opportunity to interview a local musician who I've been, you know, researching or hunting down for, for years. So yeah, there is a balance though, but you have to, you have to keep people interested in what you're doing. And if I'm just constantly mm -hmm. interviewing people they don't know about, I, I suppose that would get a bit old quickly. Mm -hmm. So you do want to strike a balance. You know, I'm always looking for balance in terms of production, mm -hmm. balance of genre, balance of perspectives. And, you know, mixing that, the unknown with the known. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, you know, people, you can, you can sort of hope, you hope that a broad audience will maybe, you'll, you'll stay in their mind to some degree. Do you engineer your own shows? Mm -hmm. I, I pretty much do it all from top mm -hmm. to bottom, which is a, a lot of work. It's a lot of work producing <laughs> this stuff. So, yeah. And what do you like about editing? What, oh, I mean, edit, you have a lot of control as an editor. <laughs> you mm -hmm. can make people sound really eloquent or... You can leave in all their imperfections and make them sound less than perfect. Mm -hmm. But uh, I love building the narrative. And through editing, you can do that. You know, maybe you can create a narrative where there wasn't one before. You know, you have you can really polish someone's story as an editor and make it really, hopefully make it really gripping to listen to, I hope. Do you, do you love the power you hold to to create and follow your vision? I, again, I don't even think about what I do in that way. It's just like I have tunnel vision on like the deadlines, you know, mm. and I know that, you know, my manager at WFYI is waiting for me to turn in some paperwork right now. <laughs> and I'm trying to balance that with getting all these things done. So yeah. you're just kind of tearing through it so quick. You don't even I don't even sometimes think about that. Yeah. It, when I talk to people who listen to the show, that gives that kind of humbles me in that way to know that, hey, you know, this thing that I'm like at home editing till 3 a.m., somebody actually heard that and it meant something to them. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the whole point of you it. You know, I've, known, I, I've come to know you on a personal basis, and I know this to be true, that you were, in fact, quite humble. And so how do you manage to, uh, to stay grounded? You know, because there is a, uh, and I don't mean this in a pejorative manner, you know, you are a celebrity, a local celebrity, and, you know, it comes with the territory. You're going to get attention. So... How do you uh, how do you accept that? How do you respond to it or deal with it? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm such an introvert, and uh, I, I don't know that I deal with any of it. You know, it's just randomly people might come up to me and, and want to talk. But it's always about something they heard, which I like. You know, it's something that they heard that I put on the air, touched them in some way. But, uh, you know, why do I stay humble? I mean, if you don't stay humble in this field of work, you're a fool. Because if there's one thing I've learned being a writer or a journalist— you know, I could walk in. Uh, I could walk. In, I could walk back to the station after this and get my uh, walking papers. You know, mm-hmm. this is a volatile world in the media, and a new editor can come in and just say, well, "I don't like what this guy does." See you later. So, if you're not humble doing this work, I think uh, you're, you're in for an awakening. <laughs> Essentially, then, what? What? Do you, how do you see your role as a communicator in general? Is a communicator meaning? And just a communicator because what you do, you're a communicator. You're sure. communicating with music. Is yeah, no, I, I, I think a, I understand. There's a through line that runs yeah. through all your interests, you know, are I, there not? There is. And I, I, I try to be true. You know, I was talking about the power an editor has to shape a narrative. And I, what I try to do is really listen to the artist's or the individual's vision that I'm interviewing. I want to understand their vision and try to craft that narrative around their vision. So in terms of the communication side of it, I really want it to be true to what the artist is all about and not insert my own views and uh, editorial ideas into the subject matter. So I hope I'm true to them. And again, sometimes through my research, I find out things about them they don't know. And I want to bring that to it as well and help them maybe expand their vision too. You know, I think it's a, doing these interviews, it can be a two-way street, you know, I can learn about you, you can learn about me, we can learn about the world, the listeners can learn about our world, and and that's what I want to do is facilitate this sort of um, kind of communal understanding of what we're doing here in this horrible, amazing world. <laughs> and as you said, you know, if you don't have, uh, because of your background or education, whatever, if you don't have exposure or the, uh, there's an economic factor to be exposed to live performing arts, you know, you have to depend on your television or your mm-hmm. radio or now the internet, fortunately, yeah. you know, you know, there, things are changing so that even the poorest of the poor now have access. That's what I love about radio. To, to network yeah. and like podcasts. Yeah. What do you think of the current media landscape? Yeah. And the fact that you're on a podcast. Sure, sure. Well, that's why I like working in public media. I've always aligned myself with publicly accessible platforms. You know, we, we don't keep our content behind paywalls like the New York Times. You know, we try to disseminate this to as many people as possible and remove all the barriers. You know, I worked for about 10 years at Eskenazi Hospital uh, curating the Marion Tobias music program. You know, again, we're bringing music to people that might not be able to access it in other ways, you know. Working at Nuvo, we were a free newspaper that was on every corner. I'm attracted to those sorts of platforms because I couldn't afford to the, the to get past those barriers of access when I was young. So I love working in public media because we try to make it as easy as possible for people to access what we're sharing. At the risk of inserting myself in this. No, go for it. <laughs> But we do share a lot in common, Kyle. The, okay, let's go back to Eskenazi. That's where I first met you. Is that right? Yeah. I met you. All right, uh, you were coming uh, to when Marianne Tobias APA and your colleague at FYI stole moments. Stephen were Stephen Stone. That's right. They were playing their annual Christmas. Did their mm-hmm. annual Christmas recital there in the lobby of the piano that she donated yeah. to the hospital, and that's where we met. That's right. And uh, I'll never forget that. And I met so many people there. That's oh, what yeah. I miss about doing that job. Yeah. Like everyone I, goes to the hospital. So you run into all stripes of people. I had the opportunity of, of uh, over many conversations with Marianne. She had a deep love for Eskenazi and Good. for that program. Yeah. And the fact that you know that you were in that position tells me, well, I know that she respected you highly. What did you think about her passing? You know, I mean, I can't remember how old she was, but it certainly wasn't, I mean, a shock in terms of her age. But, you know, I think of it in, in, in perspective with Crystal DeHaan's passing too, right? Here are these people who were extraordinary patrons of the arts for decades. They really lifted a lot of arts organizations and people up in this community. And I wonder, do we have that next generation of art patrons? You know, I thank Marion Tobias for giving me that opportunity to 
work in this music program under her name. It meant a lot to me, and I, uh, it saddened me when she passed away, and I certainly respect everything she did in her life. She was also on the air at WFYI back in the day. I asked her about that once. There's a show called The Listening Room with Dick Rice, where they would review that. classical music records, and she would tear really? into all these uh, classical music performances and give her candid opinion. But I do wonder, are we? do we have that next generation of patrons here that are going to... Uh, take up the crusade to keep arts well, alive. Well, there'll never be another like her because, uh, you know, besides being an arts patron and a generous philanthropist, she was also a concert pianist. Yeah. Wrote the program notes, the ISO. Right, of course. Yeah. She certainly educated me over mm -hmm. the last 20, 25 years. We so. devoted her life to music, and I mm -hmm. love that. And, you know, she also loved musicians. She mm -hmm. talked about how the ISO musicians, he, she, you know, had friendships with most of them and even was mentors, some of them. So, yeah. And, you know, she also was a consultant on Dustin and my musical, mm. Call to the Musical. So you can't, I can't tell you, I, there's nothing more intimidating to be sitting there playing your score and, 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 and singing the lyrics and your musical, and she's sitting there judging you. <laughs> yeah, that's what I remember most about her, was her incredibly high standards mm. for, for quality and what should be presented and what should not be presented. And I think that might be missing in the arts landscape today to some degree. Mm -hmm. it, it, can, it can come off as intense to someone from my generation because I didn't grow up around people who had those high standards, but it'll always stick with me, the high standards she had and exercised oh, at all times. Oh, she pulled no punches. She yeah. didn't like something that she, she heard that Dustin playing on the piano. She'd say, fix it. Yeah. Like, fix that. Yeah. Fix yeah. That. It'll stick with me. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what, what, what are your observations regarding Indy's art scene, performing art scene? Yeah, and I mean, from what angle? <laughs> There's so I many mean, ways to approach it. Well, that that statement itself yeah. tells me that it's it's like a, a universe yeah. of things going on. We're just you know, I, I'm hoping that this podcast will put a spotlight on Indianapolis in general. Yeah, uh, because I mean to have artists from all stripes on here to talk about their work. And just recently, I talked to some uh, creative. Uh, creatives, uh, both uh, artistic directors of two theaters, American Lives and Catalyst Repertory. And they're sort of, and I, 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 I call them uh, Brian Fonseca's mm -hmm. descendants because they have the same sensibilities. And I said, well, what do you think about that notion that some people have where they say things like, well, if you were any good, you would be in New York or Chicago or L.A.? And, you know, they push back on that, as I do. You know, they made the point that great art is being made here. Yeah. Just because it's not in those places sure. doesn't mean that it's good. They may have a combination of more money, more marketing, more breaks, whatever. Yeah. What yeah. is your take on it? Sure. So I think there's a lot of good and bad here, right? When I think of the good, I think of visual artists like Anila Aga, who's a brilliant genius who lives here in Indianapolis. Carl Pope also is a guy who I greatly admire. Is visual Carl artist. still in town? Yeah, I believe so. I didn't yeah. know that. Extraordinary man. Visionary artist. I've so, got to see his work uh, at, at Steve Stillhouse. He's in the permanent collection oh, of, right. of MoCA in yeah, New York. Exactly. Museum of Modern Art. MoCA. Exactly. MoMA. And I don't know if, MoCA yeah, here. <laughs> I don't know if we always do a good job and I, I want to take the media to task, My people like me. I don't know if we always do a good job elevating those people. Um, and I don't know if the local arts infrastructure supports them as much as they should. There's also a downside to the local arts culture, and I think that can be seen through the ongoing uh, missteps at Newfields, to put it kindly, right? Yeah, let's do talk about that. There is that. a lot. The, the kind of sentiments that were expressed at Newfields that resulted in international outrage are very common here. And the things that I hear firsthand from museums and arts institutions here that don't get publicized are worse <laughs> than what came out at Newfields. So the problem here is deep. There is a lot of classism and racism and in, in, in this local arts community that 
I think the activists are trying to hammer that out so and, and take it on. So what you're saying is elitism is still alive Elitism well. is still alive and well in a lot of other isms that are, mm-hmm. in, that are infecting the arts Institutional culture. Institutional racism. Yeah, institutional Call it what it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's a lot of good and bad here. But that's brought a lot of shame onto our city, what's gone on at Newfields. I mean, it's been an ongoing, it's been in the New York Times and in all the arts well, publications. Why so, do you think that there's so hush-hush about it? What happened? With what happened call it a personnel matter. Recent, yeah. yeah. Why well, know a little bit of the inside story? And I think because it doesn't, <laughs> no one looks good. Mm-hmm. When, when the laundry is, is uh, aired, no one's going to look good when they hear what happens. So, well, you know, yeah. there's a communications 101 about crisis management, PR. PR people, they offer those services. People also sign NDAs and can't talk oh, about that's it, true. too. So, I mean, there's a lot of things, I think, that uh, it's not flattering for and what are And what's the rank-and-file person in the community? I mean, I've seen official spokespeople on yeah. being interviewed on TV about black leaders dropping off the you know, the committees and whatever, but what are the average people saying about it? African-Americans. Right. I mean, that depends. I mean, there were people protesting the winter lights display. So there is anger and frustration Mm -hmm. about what's happening. Mm -hmm. But there's also people who are glad to just go and continue blindly patronizing as well. I work with the institution. You know, I have a long history working there as both a music curator and a DJ. And there was wonderful people there that are suffering because of the decisions that the executives there are making and their missteps. So I hope for everyone's sake that it's resolved in a way that's equitable. I didn't realize that you were a music curator there. Tell me yeah, about it was that. A, it was for a brief period of time. Okay. Yeah, but uh, I was able to bring in some really extraordinary artists. Uh, to the Toby? To the Toby or just out in the middle of the galleries at times. So... Um, just a real diverse range of artists. Laraji, who is a famous, he plays like a zither. He worked with Brian Eno. He's considered mm-hmm. a father of ambient music. He's one of the few black musicians who were involved in early ambient experimental electronic music. Uh, to Kominas, who are a punk band, a Pakistani punk band, which we brought in to play for the opening of the Ai Weiwei show uh, a few years back. So I was able to bring in a really interesting group of musicians to the So city. you've done some unique partnerships. Have you partnered with the other museums, like the Idlejor? You know, I brought a group called the Tribe Called Red to the Idlejor a couple of times, an incredible Canadian they? Native uh, First Nations electronic music group. They mix really? uh, traditional Canadian electronic uh, Indigenous music with electronic music. They're a groundbreaking group. So, yeah, I've collaborated with a lot of institutions. How about here. the Indiana State Museum? You know, Indiana has a rich musical right, history. Right. You know, I have a little something going on with them, but I can't talk about it yet. But, yeah, I've done some stuff with them as well. Yeah. Okay. I mean, all of the knowledge you have about all of the composers, everybody from Cole Porter to to Hoagy Carmichael and Jeanette Records. And I've learned so much from you, but in my own work, I also touched upon some of those things. So I have an appreciation like you do. But uh, uh, that 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 tradition that Indiana runs deep, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And I, I will tell you, I don't know if you heard the program I did on Brez Fletcher, mm-hmm. but you got to check that out. I don't know if that's someone who's Who ever been that? on He was the, uh, you know, Calvin Fletcher, the you know, he's looked at as one of the founders of Indiana. I believe that was his great, great uncle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Brez, and have you been to Laurel Hall? No. Are you familiar with Laurel Hall? I've heard The of mansion that. out on the northeast side of the city. That's where Brez Fletcher grew up. Laurel Hall. Yeah. He Remind be, me. It's, it's a mansion. They okay. do a lot of weddings there now, but it was built by the Fletcher family. Okay. Brez's father. Yeah, I have He grew up that. there. Yeah, okay. you would know if you saw pictures. So whatever happened to... He was that? one of the pioneer LGBTQ plus songwriters in America. So no check kidding. that show out. Yeah, from Indiana. Very tragic life. Uh, his mother committed suicide when he was a kid, and he ultimately killed wow, himself. See, that's at, another at thing I love about you. You find the most obscure stories. Well, that's <laughs> <laughs> they're not obscure to me. That's no, all I, can I know say. that, but yeah. I, that's I love that. I love I yeah. love that about your work. So, uh, whatever happened, to you you approached me to to get a contact in my hometown, Fort Wayne, about. The family that used to produce uh, had had their own label. Right. Did That's an ongoing research project. Yeah. I have so many of those on the back burner. Like I have a, at, any, at any time, I have about 20 things. And that's one thing I don't think people realize when they listen to the radio show. Sometimes these are years in the making, the yeah. research, acquiring the materials. But yeah, the first... Mexican music record label in Indiana was in Fort Wayne in the 1960s. And it was in this called, pioneering family. Do you remember? 
I'm blanking on it now. Well, and the family I know, Trevino's. Yeah, the Trevino Records. Yeah, of course. And I told you that one of the Trevino's was my mentor responsible for me being in television. So, yeah. yeah. But they held big dances in that area back in the 60s. They had uh, four or five successful records, the family business. They were all involved Mm -hmm. in it. You know, back to the, the art museum discussion, why is representation important from the standpoint of uh, a straight, white, Caucasian like yourself? Well, why, in terms of the arts and culture scene? Yes. Well, that's some of the, some of the most exciting work being made today is made by non-white artists. So why would we punish them? Why would we... Or why would we punish ourselves and not enjoy and experience what other people are creating? To me, it just doesn't make sense, you know. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I mean, Indiana was the home of the Ku Klux Klan for many years. We have systemic racism here that influences things that are happening in local and state government today. So there's a lot of crazy things that got us where we are politically, right? But why would we do that to ourselves on a personal level? Why would I deprive myself of experiencing something extraordinary and beautiful because I don't understand the person who made it or have some bias against them? So I would only speak to that personally, but I think there's years of systemic racism in Indiana that have landed us where we're at today. Mm -hmm. Well, do you think that that also uh, uh, the idea of can we truly call ourselves a world-class city if we're still uh, keeping people oppressed? Right, like the Mike Pence years, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I don't, I don't, one thing I hope I never do in my show is a um, lavish Indianapolis or Indiana in false praise. You know, I think we need to hold people accountable and be honest about mm-hmm. what's happening here. Let's praise the people who do great things, mm-hmm. but let's not cover up the horrendous, decisions that are made that hurt people mm-hmm. and that hold people back for no good reason. What do you think in terms of the city and the state's uh, desire to you know, make uh, Indianapolis a cultural de- destination? Do you think we need to work out these bigger problems before we can really say that we're a true Sure. I mean, look how Mike Pence is, look at how some of the recent legislation has affected the attitudes of corporations in investing in our city, right? I mean, mm-hmm. sure, that's going to put a real wrench in the works. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But Indianapolis is a cultural destination. I think we've done a lot of things to prevent that from happening. The destruction of Indiana Avenue is a good example. Mm -hmm. I think we have to control the forces of gentrification and really preserve what's special about our city until the whole place is just a bunch of Starbucks and and, and crappy apartment buildings. Well, you know, along those lines, I... I, uh... I uh, interviewed for my column someone who was very instrumental in developing downtown, and uh, this person, you know, we we had a talk about gentrification. He said, "Well, I don't agree that, you know, gentrification. You know, it's not, it's not, it's complicated." Sure. He said, "If there's going to be blame placed, it should be placed on government, on the city, and its policies." Yeah towards property taxes and all that sort of thing. He That's said, very true. Yeah. And he says, but, you know, the downside is, is if we don't fix up these properties, they remain uninhabited, you know, and then there's a problem of, of landlords, you know, absentee landlords. But do you find yourself caught between the middle of, 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 of all that, you know? I'm not in a position where I'm caught in it, but a lot of artists are mm-hmm. because, the the negative effects of gentrification oftentimes these days artists can't live artists, in Fountain Square anymore. Well, artists are called on to put a bandaid on that through mm-hmm. public art projects. Mm-hmm. So I think and artists depend on that money to survive. So I think a lot of particularly visual artists, but some musicians also, are put in a position where they're kind of trying to put a bandaid on the negative effects of gentrification through public art projects. And there's a lot of arts organizations here who have profited mightily from gentrification and who will tell you that they're doing work on for the benefit of the community when really it's the bankers and the real estate brokers who are really benefiting from these projects. It's very complicated. Like you said, a lot of it does have to do with property taxes and how people are priced out of the neighborhood they grew up in mm-hmm. through the escalating property taxes as mm-hmm. the value of homes increases. So I don't claim to have any answers for it, 
But I do see how gentrification or urban renewal, as it was once called, can destroy cultural districts. Well, like I mentioned Adam. earlier, Fountain Square is a yeah. good example of that. Yeah. You know, it used to be a mecca for artists who, you know, the the J.C. Penney building. Yeah, it was no a, longer... the Murphy building. Yeah. Artists are very uh, scrappy. And I think they'll always find a place to mm -hmm. create. But, where, the, but the, the city needs to do something to preserve those places, or we're just always starting from where zero. Where are the artists now, the visual artists? Where are they now? Is there a concentration now? I mean, there's still studios in the Murphy Building. There's yeah. the Circle okay. City Industrial Complex. But there's complex. not a neighborhood that's for poor, starving local I think, artists. I think there's rides. some folks trying to do that in the Garfield Park area. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, yeah it's there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what is your message? Do you have a message for young people listening Gosh, you know, I just came from Carl Wilde Elementary School where Babyface had donated a bunch of musical instruments and there was a room full of a gymnasium full of third, fourth and fifth graders who were uh, cheering Babyface on for this act of uh, generosity and donating all these all this this musical gear. Um there was something to learn there, but I don't know if I've processed it yet. But you know, I would just say trust your internal voice and your vision and don't let uh, anyone stamp that out. You know, the only reason I've succeeded is because I followed the, this weird voice in my head that always told me to turn left where other people were turning right. Mm -hmm. And it allowed me to cultivate. I'm not a great broadcaster. I'm not a great producer, but I have a perspective that's unique that I bring to my work. And it's because I always just kind of Maybe I'm mentally ill or I'm stubborn, but I always listened to this voice in my head that uh, entrusted it and, and stood, stood my ground even when people thought what I did was foolish and worthless. It probably is foolish. And uh, I think trust your voice and be true to that and don't conform to uh it sounds like you've Consensus never allowed opinion. anyone to define you as well. I mean, maybe I have, but I, I always revert back to my best or worst nature, whatever it is that's <laughs> keeping me on this track. <laughs> mm -hmm. Along those lines, what do you hope to accomplish in the long term mm. through your work as a broadcaster? You know, so and much... arts yeah, advocate. Yeah, so much of what I've done up to this point has been focused on Indiana music history. And I hope that I've made some dent and made... I hope I've been able to bring stories to life to people, develop greater appreciation and recognition for the music history we have here in Indiana. And up to this point, that's really been a big part of what I do. Why yeah. is history important? Why is history important? I mean, to me, I'm passionate about the art itself. So it's important to me for that reason. I don't think like Braz Fletcher, this this gentleman I mentioned, he's his name is not known here in Indianapolis, where he's from. But there's a lot to learn from his music. He wrote a song called It that people consider the first song about a transgender, non-binary person, you know? There's a lot to learn from things that happened 100 years ago. You know, Leroy Carr, the blues singer from Indianapolis who started recording in 1928 and drank himself to death. He died in 1935. His music, his collaborations with the guitarist named Scrapper Blackwell are the foundation of modern rock and roll and rhythm and blues music. His songs have been performed by the Rolling Stones, Eric Clapton, the great blues singers Robert Johnson, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, all recorded his music. But people here don't know who Leroy Carr and Scrapper Blackwell are. So I'm passionate about the art. And to me, time is, is malleable. I don't view things past, future, present. To me, if something has, it's great, it's always great. Mm -hmm. If it's great for me this afternoon, it'll be great for somebody tomorrow. Any chance your show will be syndicated? Well, we just started airing Echoes and Cultural Manifesto on WBAA in Lafayette. And I do get this question, but it's so hyper-local. I just don't imagine people outside uh -huh. Indiana would care, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, but you know. also have big names from national sure. names too. So it's sure. that, that mixture, it sounds like, it seems but like it might be... I worry know. if I tried to do something for but what, national even consumption, the local people that, that it would that, dilute what's unique about what I do. But all the people that you interview, the themes that usually emerge from those shows, the, the discussion is, oh, it could be of interest to anybody, yeah. anywhere. When it you go, How I view all this is when you go on that national level, you really have to be competitive mm -hmm. and you really have to paint with broad brush strokes. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm better at where I'm at, kind of down in the dirt. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. where I like to be. And I don't want to have to worry about, you know, is a, you know, this demographic going to like it? And did we get this many clicks? And that's a world I don't want to live yeah. in. 
And you know what? We all benefit from you, Kyle Long. I, I for one, am very, very grateful that you are a presence on the local media landscape. And, uh, you know, I, I just really respect the integrity that you have. You do it your way and on your terms. And, and while that speaks to, you know, public radio as well, you know, uh, so I'm really grateful that, uh, I had you on my turf this time, and uh, just as the time we spent together in your studio, I benefit greatly from it. So. Thank you. And the work you've done and the work you're currently doing is like a, a, a torch for us to follow. So I don't mean to be patronizing by saying that, but, you know, I, I really am influenced by the career you've had and, and how you continue to well, be part great. of the scene. great. Then we're a mutual admiration yes. society. For, for sure. <laughs> May it continue. Yes. Thanks again. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate the opportunity. Who will take center stage on the podcast next? Your seat on the aisle with Tom Alvarez awaits. Follow Tom on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And make sure to visit TomAlvarez.studio. Watch Tom every other Thursday on Lifestyle Live on Wish TV. And make sure to listen every week here on the All Indiana Podcast Network.